This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Earthquakes. Do you love surprises and hate the annoying predictability of tornadoes? Try Earthquakes today! At The Sweaty Penguin, our mission is to make climate change less overwhelming, less politicized, and more fun. You know, like renting a bouncy castle for a funeral. So it's always a special day when I can share that Congress might actually agree on something. Happy Friday, I'm Ethan Brown and this is Tip of the Iceberg, where I will break down some environmental news and then answer a question from our listeners on the air. Submit questions via Patreon, email, or social media. Patron questions go to the front of the line, so sign up at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. It's actually not as novel as it sounds. While the partisan fights tend to make the news in a sort of world star but if it was boring fashion, Congress has passed several bipartisan bills with climate solutions, including the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, BEST Act, Nuclear Energy Leadership Act, Great American Outdoors Act, and Use It Act, to name a few in the last five years. Although I think we'd all prefer to replace the Use It Act with the Bop It, Twist It, Pull It Act. <laughs> I think that has more of a ring to it. I even talked two weeks ago about how the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, and several others were all passed from 1970 to 1976 with large bipartisan coalitions in a divided government, thanks to an endorsement from Mr. Clean himself. But there's actually one law from 1970 that had bipartisan approval is a bedrock environmental law 53 years later, and yet both liberals and conservatives are questioning if it needs a makeover, one far more powerful than your average glasses-off-hair-down rom-com procedure that my writers keep trying to do to me. That law is the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, not to be confused with Nepo baby Timothy Chalamet. NEPA requires federal agencies to assess the environmental effects of their actions. It spearheaded the idea of environmental assessments and environmental impact statements, and it also established the President's Council on Environmental Quality to advise the President on environmental policy and the state of the environment. And it's important to have people doing research and advising decision-makers. Without it, you end up with Chris Pratt voicing Mario and Garfield. Wahoo! NEPA applies to any major project involving federal funding or permits issued by a federal agency. It's like a hall monitor, but one that's actually useful and doesn't just harass you until you're about to pee your pants, Jared. If an agency's proposed action falls under NEPA, there are three levels of analysis the agency must undertake to comply with the law. 
The first level is preparing a Categorical Exclusion, or CAT-X, which is a list of actions that the agency has determined do not have a significant impact on the environment. Incidentally, CAT-X is also the name of a spray bottle often used by one of our writers in her 400-square-foot apartment with her two feline children. Another writer added that she uses CAT-X for actual children, which I didn't know she had until now. If the proposed action is not included in the CAT-X, that would mean it is not excluded from NEPA requirements. In other words, there is a chance it has a significant impact on the environment. So the second level is to figure out what that impact is by preparing an Environmental Assessment, or EA, which is a public document that considers the proposal's environmental outcomes and alternative ways to achieve the agency's objectives. And I assume if an EA gets approved, the government has a stamp that just says, it's in the game. If the EA does determine that the proposed action will not have a significant impact on the environment, though, a finding of no significant impact, or FONSI, <laughs> is produced. And you may be thinking to yourself, do all government documents require this many acronyms? And the answer is yes, which also stands for yucky egg salad. If the proposed action is not covered by the CAT-X, and the EA finds that it will have a significant impact on the environment, the third level is to prepare an Environmental Impact Statement, or EIS, which describes the environmental impacts of the proposed action, adverse environmental impacts, reasonable alternatives, and irreversible and irretrievable commitments of resources, that would be involved in the proposed action. The responsible decision-maker must weigh the potential environmental impacts and other pertinent considerations before making the final decision, and a Record of Decision, or ROD, is issued that records the agency's final decision. Like how I had to weigh the potential impacts on our not-explicit rating if I let my writers make any of the rod jokes that they were way too excited about. To many, NEPA has been a rousing success story, like Reese Witherspoon and Jim Toth's marriage. Wait, what? After 11 years? Some NEPA success stories proponents cite include turning contaminated land from an old steel mill in Atlanta into a safe place to work and live, halting the logging of 1.8 million acres of centuries-old trees in Alaska's Tongass National Forest, and saving wetlands and money in Michigan by improving an existing highway instead of constructing a massive four-lane freeway. In Arecibo, Puerto Rico, NEPA helped halt a waste-to-energy incinerator that could have further polluted the air and harmed nearby wildlife. NEPA has also been crucial in the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, where mostly indigenous and low-income U.S. citizens used NEPA to compel the U.S. Navy to consider the devastating effects of war games on their tropical homeland and sacred sites. Without NEPA, these communities would have had little chance to protect their lands and livelihoods without letting the kraken out of the trench, and nobody wants to deal with that cleanup. 
Beyond the stories, though, let me just point to the concept. A free market requires participants to have access to full information. That's why, for example, we have consumer protection laws that ban McDonald's from claiming their burgers give you superpowers, or ban Peacock from claiming their original shows are good. If people don't have full information, they can't make rational decisions, and we can't have an entire market flooded with Kendall Roys. And it's not just the market. In a democracy, we also need access to full information. In order to provide input on what happens in our communities, we need to actually know what's happening. That's what NEPA's supposed to accomplish. It's supposed to gather information and then let the public weigh in on that information. That seems like a no-brainer, so it's no wonder NEPA passed with bipartisan support. So what's the problem? The NEPA process is really cumbersome. Depending on the source and year, it seems NEPA approvals can take on average three to seven years and sometimes cost millions of dollars. And I know what three to seven year long projects that cost millions of dollars are like. I went to college. But that process is a lot to ask of every single project. And while it's important to understand the environmental impact of a project, it's also important to take into account the environmental impact of a project sitting for years in NEPA limbo. Sometimes, NEPA ties up clean energy projects, and as important as it is to make sure these projects respect their surrounding environment and surrounding community, they're also helping stave off climate change. We don't have five years to debate every single solar or wind farm while we use more expensive, higher-emitting energy. Of course, projects need to be cited and built mindfully, but they also need to be built. To what extent is NEPA holding up clean energy projects? It's hard to tell. According to the R Street Institute, of the projects undergoing NEPA review at the Department of Energy, 42% concerned clean energy, transmission, or environmental protection, while just 15% were related to fossil fuels. However, According to the Frontier Group, that number is inaccurate, and fossil fuel projects significantly outnumber clean energy projects in the NEPA pipeline. But honestly, that number doesn't matter that much. Be it a clean energy project or a fossil fuel project, we deserve to have our voices heard. But if we like a project, we deserve to have it approved in a reasonable amount of time. And if we don't like a project, we deserve to have it nixed in a reasonable amount of time. Like that 90s show. Please, just get it out of here. And that's where members of Congress are starting to find some common ground. There seems to be shared interest across parties in putting a time limit on the NEPA process, expanding energy projects, and continuing to prioritize community voices. A Republican plan was put forth last Thursday, and a Democrat plan should be on the way. Joe Manchin also put forth a plan last year which may lie somewhere in between the two. You know we love a good three-way permitting reform bill spooning session. Now, a lot of the coverage of this permitting reform process makes it appear to be a really fraught issue. 
Different politicians appear to either be favoring certain technologies, sneaking automatic approvals for projects in their states into their bills, or trying to tack permitting reform onto other unrelated bills rather than making it its own thing. At this rate, somebody's going to try to sneak a ban of Velcro sneakers into a permitting bill, which, honestly, I would not be opposed to. But all that aside, it seems clear that there's agreement on the premise. Both sides see the issue of NEPA holding up projects of public interest, and both sides are proposing solutions to that issue. I know permitting reform doesn't sound sexy, but I think this presents an exciting opportunity for today's divided government to work together on climate and take some steps in the right direction. And that's as sexy as it gets. I hope we can continue to explore this topic deeper in the coming months on the podcast. I'm still learning about it myself, and found it really challenging to research because of so many conflicting reports and statistics. I mean, permitting reform is truly the tinder of environmental issues. Profile says it's 6'3", driver's license says it's 5'11", but if you line up eight subway footlongs, they only go up to its neck. But it seems to me... Like, permitting reform may be one of the high-profile issues of the summer, and I wanted to give you some context before things start to heat up. We'll probably see both sides proposing different approaches, and you may like one approach and hate the other approach, and it might start to feel partisan and bitter, but when that happens, let's take a breath and let's go back to the premise. We need information about projects, but we also need good projects to happen. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. And if we can keep the focus there, I think this may be one of the easiest environmental issues out there on which politicians can find common ground. Almost as easy as banning Chris Pratt from voicing any more characters. Now, here's Mo with the news. Hey folks, it's your favorite comedy writer Mo here, and I hope you're having a good day. You know the kind where your favorite song comes on when you hit shuffle, and a bird poops on your enemy. Here are your top environmental news stories of May 12, 2023. A new bill instructs the Florida Transportation Department to begin studying how the radioactive chemical phosphogypsum could be used as a bulk material in road construction, even though its use is banned by the EPA. It's kind of like if we decided to substitute all fish tank water with bleach. This just in, you've heard of the X-Men mutants. Now get ready for radioactive Florida men. Instead of a wheelchair, Charles Xavier will defeat evil, and an airboat alongside an alligator with opposable thumps. This April, heat waves have hit regions in Europe, Asia, and North Africa earlier in the year than usual, with temperatures breaking records in many locations. Hmm. Record-breaking, very hot, global impact. Sounds a lot like Mario. You know, heat waves, heat waves, heat waves, heat waves. Stop. Okay. Climate change is contributing to the worsening of heat waves and making it harder for humans to adjust to higher temperatures, particularly in early season heat waves, which have been linked to higher mortality rates. 
Locals have been preparing by writing witty epitaphs, such as too hot to trot and I didn't touch the thermostat, dad. The U.S. Supreme Court has rejected petitions from oil companies such as Chevron, BP, and Shell to move nearly two dozen lawsuits from state courts to federal courts. Experts are saying this move was even more hotly contested than the Kardashians' move from the e-network to Hulu. However, both contained record-breaking levels of crude plastics. In April, the global sea surfaces hit a new record high temperature. It has never warmed this much this quickly. This is discounting the city blocks surrounding the Met Gala during Rihanna's arrival. Like, that look was white hot, people. Scientists say this will contribute to global warming. They warn that the warmer oceans can lead to the death of marine life, more extreme weather, higher sea levels, and less efficient absorption of greenhouse gases. But also very cozy for humans to take a little swim, you know? They are also concerned that this will raise the world's temperature to a dangerous level by the end of next year. The only thing more dangerous is attending the Met Gala without turning a full look. Dua Lipa, if you are going to wear Chanel bridal, Wear the veil. Lagerfield is rolling in his designer grave. Marine biologists from the University of South Florida have discovered a microscopic single-celled paradise called, say it with me, Thalaster apodigitomorphis, to be responsible for the mass die-off of long-spined sea urchins from the U.S. to the Caribbean. And must I say, you have to be pricked powerful of a parasite to kill off an organism from Florida. This parasite was also responsible for wiping out about 98% of sea urchins in a similar episode in the region in the 1980s, making it the single deadliest event in history involving leg warmers. I'm Mo from the Sweaty Penguin, and that has been our weekly update in environmental news. Do you want to rearrange the furniture in your apartment but lack the motivation and strength to do so? Then earthquakes are for you. Sure, you could ask your dad, but he hates you. And you haven't talked since last Easter when you ran over the Easter bunny your dad hired to take photos with your little cousins in your ex's car. You did try to give the Easter bunny mouth to mouth, but it was too late. So yeah, who needs to confront that? Let's outsource the work to nature, baby. Earthquakes. Let them move your furniture today. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to Tip of the Iceberg. It's time for Ask Me Anything, where our listeners get a chance to ask me any environmental questions they may have. Submit questions on our Patreon, email, or social media. Questions from patrons go to the front of the line, so sign up at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Today's question is a very serious one that was sent to us. It comes from James Hubachek. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but James asks, I'm sweaty, but I'm not a penguin. Is this normal? 
Well, James, no, it it's not. Um, you're you're saying you're not a penguin, which which is very strange. But that's not really something I know how to handle. So, I actually plugged this question into Chat GPT for you, and I don't normally have Chat GPT answer questions because it gets them wrong a lot and it loves to gaslight me, but. I thought it gave a pretty good answer to your question, James. So it says, Dear friend, thank you for reaching out to us with your question. While it is quite common for penguins to be sweaty, it is not so common for other animals or humans to experience excessive sweating. However, we appreciate that you have recognized this and are seeking advice on how to become a sweaty penguin. Firstly, it is important to note that becoming a penguin is unfortunately not possible for humans. Penguins are a unique and specialized species adapted to living in cold climates, and it is not possible for humans to transform into these flightless birds. However, you can still work toward becoming a sweaty penguin by increasing your physical activity, especially in cold environments, which will cause you to sweat more. You can also try wearing warmer clothing while exercising to promote sweating or engage in activities that naturally induce sweating, such as sauna sessions. Furthermore, maintaining a healthy diet and staying hydrated can also help with sweating. Consuming foods that contain capsicum, such as spicy peppers, can increase sweat production. Drinking plenty of water and other fluids can also help keep your body hydrated and promote sweating. We hope this advice helps you on your journey to becoming a sweaty penguin, and wish you the best of luck in your endeavors. And I couldn't have said it much better than that, so chat GPT, you get a win on this one. In all seriousness, though, I <laughs> I did want to bring up this question to lead into another, another issue I wanted to mention, which is coming down the line, and I think I, I wasn't expecting to get a specific question on it, but I wanted to address it in advance so later when this comes up, I can point back and call myself a hot take wizard. So we've seen a lot of heat waves around the world. In Portugal, Spain, and Northern African countries, we're seeing temperatures more typical of July than April, with highs expected to approach 104 degrees Fahrenheit in some areas. In India, China, Bangladesh, and Thailand, we're seeing temperatures exceed 100 degrees Fahrenheit, with some areas seeing all-time records for the month of April. But one piece of this that is also very noteworthy to me, if we look at global sea temperatures, these aren't necessarily affecting people directly in the same way that the heat waves would. But in April, the global sea surface hit a new record high temperature. It has never warmed this much this quickly. And scientists say this will contribute to global warming. They warn that the warmer oceans will lead to the death of marine life, more extreme weather, higher sea levels, less efficient absorption of greenhouse gases. Um, but what this signals is that we may be transitioning from a La Nina event to an El Nino event. So we've talked about this before, but a quick review. Basically, at and around the equator, we have what are called trade winds, 
which are winds that pretty reliably travel from east to west. If we go to the Pacific Ocean, what that means is the warm water at the surface of the ocean is going to get blown westward. So in the eastern Pacific, colder water from the deep ocean is then going to flow up to compensate for that, and it will make that part of the ocean cooler. And then in the west, the water is going to get warmer. So that process in the eastern Pacific is called upwelling, and we have this region of cool water buildup, which can affect temperatures over there, and then in the west we have this region of warm water, and that water will radiate heat into the atmosphere, and it will affect the global temperature. Now, that's happening all the time, but that process can evolve, and it evolves in a cycle. So... If the trade winds speed up, then that's going to be pushing more of that water further west. That will force water deeper into the western Pacific. And then we'll see more upwelling of that cold water in the eastern Pacific. So with less warm water sitting at the surface of the ocean, because we have that cold water upwelling, there's going to be less heat radiating off the ocean, and that's going to lead to a cooler global temperature. That phenomenon... Uh, if Pacific temperatures drop a half degree Celsius below normal, would be called La Nina. And that typically happens every few years. And we've been in a La Nina event for the last few years. So you've been hearing all these record-breaking heat waves and storms and everything over the last few years. This is an abnormally cold period in terms of the Earth's natural cycle. We're, we're in a La Nina event. However... If the trade winds slow down, or they can even reverse in an extreme case, then we'll see less upwelling of cold water. We'll see less of the eastern Pacific warm water ending up in the western Pacific. And that means the entire surface of the ocean, or much of the surface of the ocean, is actually warm water. So all of that is going to be radiating heat into the atmosphere, and that's going to create a warmer climate for the planet, and that oscillation, if it rises a half degree Celsius above normal, is called El Nino. And El Nino also happens every few years. There's a good amount of variation there, but if you remember back to 2016, that was actually the hottest year on record, and it still hasn't been beaten, and that's because we were in a El Nino event in 2016, whereas now, even though climate change has progressed, we've been in a La Nina event, which has kind of pulled things back a little bit. So what does that mean? We are currently very likely transitioning out of that La Nina event and into possibly an El Nino event. And this stuff is tough to predict, and I'm not an expert on it, so I don't want to make any big prediction here. But what might happen is, first off, we might start to see even worse extreme weather than we have over the last few years, which is not ideal. But second, there's it's, it's not likely, but there's a possibility that, depending on the extent of an El Nino event, the world could surpass the... 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times target. That That's the target in the Paris Agreement that we're trying to keep climate change under. Now, what that means is 
from a purely scientific perspective, that's no more concerning than the rest of climate change is. Uh, I wouldn't say that an abnormal El Nino is signaling too much of a... Certainly climate change can worsen El Nino events, but I I wouldn't say that 1.2 in a La Nina versus 1.5 in an El Nino, like we're, we're, there, there is some natural fluctuation there. And if it peaks over 1.5 at some point, it very likely could bounce back down. That's just kind of how these global averages work. Um, the actual target that we talk about in the Paris Agreement or in world, world conferences and goal setting and treaties is global warming, keeping it below 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. And that implies that we're talking about stabling off below 1.5 at the end of the century, hopefully bringing it down even beyond that with uh, carbon removal technologies and and natural systems. But if it peaks above 1.5 at any point, we don't fail on that goal. And that is really where I think my concern lies. If there is some year in the next decade where the global average temperature is the hottest in history, and it is 1.5 over pre-industrial times, I think that could give the message that we failed on climate. And that would not be true. It would not be ideal, but it would not be true. And if people are not understanding this El Nino-La Nina oscillation that is actually likely going to happen in the next year, and what that 1.5 goal actually signifies, then that's just a concern for messaging. So I I just wanted to bring that up here. I think this could come up again in the future, but seeing this study about warming oceans was kind of the (laughs) knock on the door that El Nino might be coming. And with that in mind, I wanted to prep all of you to be sure I don't think 2023 or anything like that would be exceeding 1.5. But if if something like that happens down the line, or if 2023 starts shattering records or being a big spike from last year, it's possible that could happen. But that would more like... It, climate change would be part of that, but the El Nino-La Nina oscillation would probably play a major role in that too. So that's natural and... Be concerned, but don't be more concerned than you already are, is is maybe where I'm going. Anyway, thank you so much for the question, James, and thanks to all of you for listening to Tip of the Iceberg. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and your questions move to the front of the line for Tip of the Iceberg. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET 
Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you on Friday for a deep dive on the Eagle Ford Shale. This is the third of our four-part series with the Gulf Climate Listening Project. We will be discussing a carbon bomb on the Gulf Coast in Texas, so I will see you then. Thank you.